Kiora and welcome to the Machinist Therapy Hotline. Believe it or not, straight after episode 22 is now episode 23. <laughs> so to make sure that we've got all the guys here for episode 23, let's call them in. Shane. Hey. Tony. I'm ready. I'm ready. Albert. What's up, boys? <laughs> and me, Jody Tuckwell. So here we are for Machinist Therapy Hotline. Now let's get on with the podcast <laughs> welcome this is machinist therapy hotline episode 23 and we have a guest host on with us this week his name is chris fox he has this business called ignite digi based in tasmania Australia, for those people that don't know where that is. <laughs> They're making special camera and gimbal accessories. And Chris is an overall good guy. The only problem is he's Australian. So, okay, just don't hold it against him just yet, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> Welcome, Chris. Welcome. Good to be here. Thanks. And uh, not only Australian, but Tasmanian. So off the, off the arse end of this big island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're kind of like... You're in between, eh? You're the you, you kind of you guys want to be New Zealanders, but you sort of you sort <laughs> of still associated too much with Australia. Blah, That's blah, it. Blah. And mountains aren't quite high enough, otherwise it's no, perfect. No, the now, water's pure. <laughs> now, but, do you, you have you seen the Tasmanian Devil down there? Yeah, I have. Not the one that you've seen, but uh, I've seen the real one. It's not quite the same uh, as the cartoons. How about Chad Reed? Have you seen him? Who? Chad Reed, the <laughs> professional supercross racer from it's Australia. Australia's favorite son. Mm. No. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, people tend to not know who Chad Reed is, just like in Australia. That's weird. It's a, it's a national treasure. Yeah, well, and, uh, at least it should be. Outside then, of Australia. <laughs> on the 22nd, yeah. every 22nd day of the month is Chad Reed Day. <laughs> so, you've, you've built up this really super niche well i think it's niche i mean that's only because i don't know too much about specialized camera accessories it feels like it's a niche business and yeah, I think it's pretty it's pretty small pretty niche and, and but you've you've built it up from basically nothing in such a short time to the point where you were the winner of the tasmanian exporters award 2019 You've won awards for cinema photography accessory stuff in 2018. That's that's pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> Thanks. The um, yeah, we've had an interesting journey getting here. Uh, that's for sure. And it's all sort of come about out of uh, trying to keep on putting food on the table. What? So let's. So before we get into the stuff where your business yeah. really sort of created from, why don't you give us your backgrounds again? You know, not from when mm. you had come out of your mum but like a bit further <laughs> on from there from when you sort of were an adult and off you went into your merry way like talk us through it yeah okay so i've done a little bit of stuff i uh <clears throat> i'm an engineer i went uh i was at the air force for uh 10 years and then i went up to the mines in western australia where they you know, dig iron ore out of the ground and send it all over all over the world for another 10 years and about that time i had an idea with another chap uh, called andrew to you know this is about the time the drones started to um, make their way into popular. Like you start seeing videos that have been shot with them on YouTube and people are starting to push the industrial applications of it. And where we were working, we just saw large amounts of wasted 
time, like people doing stuff that could be automated or replaced by you know, robots or drones. And I thought, man, this could be pretty cool. So we had a crack at uh, starting a little business to get the licensing, which was uh, difficult at that time. And then didn't ever end up doing a day's industrial work with a drone, period. Business just went <laughs> sideways to the uh, ex- exit stage left and um, we ended up doing film and TV. How did I'd, you just – let me just take a step back. So how did you – you were obviously – you know, you, you must have owned a drone before that. You you were sort of into that no, thing. No, oh. not at all. You went from not digging all. shit out of the ground <laughs> to wanting to be – Flying stuff above yeah. the ground. I, I must be like the only person that's played with drones in the world world that thought drones could be something that uh, could be a good business idea and then started rather than I think just about everyone else has had a drone or had a remote controlled car or something and started work trying to you know, how can I monetize this idea. We just had the idea that this could be something to do and so started getting the licenses and yeah, first drone first drone that I had was a, a DJI Phantom, I think, which was a trainer to get the license with and then um, then it went big and we just went and bought uh, a large, it was a Sinistar 8 at the time, which was, you know, that was nominally the best for, um, the best that you could buy for the type of work we wanted to do and it went from there when it, uh, that fell out of the sky in oh, a couple of weeks after owning it thereabouts crashed straight into the into the park and it was like oh, i reckon we can probably build one of these and so we started building our own drones that still fell out of the sky occasionally um <laughs> yeah so yeah didn't start off with drones as a hobby at all it was uh which is a bit different i suppose right i have a que- i have a question for you yeah when, so when you say you know you you started out with that certain make and model of a drone mm-hmm. to get your license you make it sound like it's, I mean, because I don't know much about those, but I mean, they make it sound like license, like, is it like flying a plane or a helicopter or some, for some reason to be in the air? I mean, what kind of license do you need to fly? Yeah, well, that's, that's just it. So in, at, uh, <coughs> licensing was, was huge. Um, you had to have the theory test. So you had to go through and pass the pilot's license theory aspect, um, for a regular pilot's license to be able to fly a drone commercially in Australia anyway. A pretty significant effort. And then you had to go through and write operations ma- manuals, maintenance manuals on how you're going to look after the equipment. Um, yeah, like it was at the time that we got the licensing, which was seven years ago. So it was like a full-blown, you're starting up an aviation business. Um, yeah. And Jeez. yeah, it was a bit nuts. So you had like, places like Australia, the UK, New Zealand, all had licensing that was similar to that. But the FAA... Um, in the states was slower to come on or to adopt a system so whereas you'd have people that were operating the same sort of equipment unlicensed in the states there was Mm -hmm. restrictions on being able to do that in in australia and you actually had to have licensing in place with the civil aviation safety authority so i see I because I, I've been you know involved in RC stuff for a long time. My father used to build the also planes down in the basement, and then we'd go to the local air, airport and mm-hmm. fly those remote control stuff. And then we had cars and we had helicopters and stuff like that. But you know, it wasn't until about maybe three or four years ago. I, I'm, I live in Northern California. And we were out on a big beach that's wide open and flat, and there was a guy out there, a couple guys out there with drones, and a couple guys out there with RC four wheel cars, and the guy flying the drone was flying it super low to the ground 
uh, across the sand following the um, remote control four-wheeler mm-hmm. that was jump, jumping over the little baby dunes. And what really tripped me out, because I got we were walking down the beach, and I walked closer and closer to the guy flying it. He's not even looking at the freaking <laughs> drone. I'm like, how can he? What? He doesn't even know what's going on or where it's at. He's not even Sitting looking. Sitting down I with a little headset on, looking into a screen. Yes, yeah. that made no sense to me whatsoever. It just really blew me away. Lots of people can do that. And, like, that was a crazy thing in Australia. You could do that recreationally with no license whatsoever. You can you know, go down the park and fly a drone and not even look at where it's going. But when we were flying drones for you know, film sets and stuff, because we had to be licensed to do it for work, you couldn't use one of those headsets at all. And you could only fly the thing within line of sight. So like uh-huh. you had, <clears throat> when the camera goes onto a drone, it's totally different to what you would have seen down the park. Like the drones that we'd fly... You know, 20 kilos, so you'd have about 5 kilos just of battery, 5 kilos of drone, and then 10 kilos of camera package. And you know, that a drone that had a ca- with a camera package on it could be, you know, when it was airborne on a, a cheap day, that might be like you know, 100 grand's worth of gear up in the air. And on an expensive day, that might be 400 grand's worth of gear flying. And Fucking so it's, hell. <laughs> That's like your yeah. fucking house flying around. Exactly. And... <laughs> Not most of the time, it would never all be your gear either. But yeah, parts would be rented in for specific jobs. Yeah, so totally different. There used to be like a two-person operation minimum, sometimes uh, three-person to mm. fly it. So you have a pilot, which uh, used to be me, um, and so that would be eyes on just flying, flying the drone to see where it goes. And then you have a camera operator, who's Tom, uh, my business partner that I work with would be steering the gimbal, which hangs from the bottom of the camera, and that would be used to frame the actual shots that you're trying to get. And then wow. you have an extra person on focus who's just operating the focus and iris of the lens. So you have, like, motors attached to the camera lenses to, yeah, to move the focus and iris or zoom if you've got that on board as well. It ended up being a two- or three-person sort of coordinated dance to try and get good shots. Wow, sounds like it. So now, because... So, so essentially, because you've got to you've got to fly in line of sight, would be very similar to what Tony was talking about that he used to do with his dad with the remote control aeroplanes and stuff. Like, mm. you, you know, it's like if you're suddenly going one way and you turn left, like facing forward, it's fine. It's when you start coming back the other way. Oh yeah, that the brain has got to start exactly. switching into gear. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's when you run into a tree. <laughs> <laughs> that because that would be a very expensive crash. Yeah. $400,000. Shit. I gotta say, so, that's kind of ridiculous that they they don't let you use the headset to fly. I mean, it, it seems like it would be higher liability and higher risk for pretty much everybody involved if you've got to do line of sight because it's obviously a way more difficult way to fly. Yeah, well, I think the uh, yeah, that was all a hang-up from uh, the fact that it was regulated so much was that the you weren't allowed to wear a headset because you were supposed to be looking at your drone and looking out for other aircraft in the area. Ah, right. That makes sense. But then if a drone's got to stay below 400 feet, there's no way a plane is going to be down there unless it's in a whole lot of trouble and the drone's not going to be the problem then. Yeah. True. Or unless (laughs) unless the plane was being flown by Maverick. Yeah. In which case, you you know, it's doing a (laughs) flyby. Yeah. (laughs) The licensing process... I mean, that sounds like you were going through the same process as if you were going to buy a helicopter. Basically, yeah. Basically, it was the same process as if you were setting up a charter business for helicopters or for planes. Yeah. Bloody hell! What can wow. I? What does it? What does that cost? And, can I ask that? Oh, 
you'd be <laughs> or, or like, not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint it because it's like if I hadn't had the background in aviation that I had beforehand and you had to go, you said you stuck your hand up and said you wanted to go and get the license for it back then, and you'd have to go and hire a consultant to come in and write all the documents for you and stuff. You, know, you could be like the application process at the time, you know, probably 20 grand deep minus the paperwork. And if Jeez. you can't generate the paperwork for yourself, then um, you, know, you could easily have another 10, 15 on having someone come in to write the documents. So, and so, then, and then it changed overnight um, with the with the regulations. So now you can get a license by sending an email or just logging on wow. the website. Wow! Yeah. So it went from 20 grand to basically a few hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, they had uh, the drones that we were building, so octocopters that are um, that were good to fly at those sort of weights and you couldn't go and buy one of those off the shelves you had to build them and then um one day uh, a company that manufactures the gimbals that we build parts for released a commercially available drone that you can just uh, place an order for and buy that was really good like they brought a, a really good product to market but uh that came to market for less than what it actually cost me to build one myself and so you went from having maybe five or eight operators that were doing what we were doing within Australia. So we used to drive all over Australia doing uh, film shoots um, because you couldn't fly with the LiPo batteries. And then when that product was released, all of a sudden there's 40, 50 people that have got the capability. um, To do it. Yeah. To do it. Yeah. And so the world has has changed. Has this um, taken away like movies, the movie industry, because I've been up in a helicopter probably three times, and, and I wanted to, I, while I was machining, I wanted to try and acquire a helicopter's license, and I just mm-hmm. didn't have the didn't have the funds to do it. But I mean, it was it was awesome, and I enjoyed being up in the air. But I studied a little bit on it too, about uh, you know movie making and how they were mm-hmm. utilized in so many things. But with the drones, especially like what you're talking about now, is that kind of sidelined the big helicopters from a lot of the filming? No, not at all. Well, it- the drones have given extra shots to filmmakers, and it means that people can put. You, know, you think filmmaking goes from people that can scrape together two thousand dollars to make a small video for fun, all the way through to hundred million dollar Hollywood projects. Right. And in there, all that all, drones have basically meant that people that had no access to any sort of aerial imagery whatsoever, then all of a sudden had access to aerial imagery that they could afford to get their hands on. Um, and so we, when we were doing lots of large drone operating, we would we would either do drone work or we'd go and hang out the side of a helicopter shooting or we'd recommend other work on to people that had uh, proper nose mounts because it just depends on what the budget is and the type of shot. Like Sometimes it would be cheaper to get a, hire a helicopter than it would be mm-hmm. to take the drone out. Really? Whoa. Yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> just because of the limitations. Like if you've got yeah, – you think a drone um, has – with the right camera package on it, might have like 12 minutes flight time, ah. for example. And so you've then got to move um, a group of people to a specific location um, and you, know, you might want the sunrise or special light or something. So you end up being, you've got to go there the um, the night before um, to get the get sunrise in a location. You stay there for the day to get the um, sunset or afternoon light and then you've got to stay there another day to get back and all of a sudden you've got travel costs for a group of people, two lots of accommodation overnight um, and stuff. Oh, and wow. all of a sudden it's like we could get in the helicopter and just fly there and be done in an hour. That's yeah. true. And you could yeah. probably have, you know, you could probably run 
if something went haywire, you could probably run, you know, two or three yeah. takes with the chopper versus the drone with, with, with 12 minutes. I mean, and all the movies I've ever watched too with Arnold Schwarzenegger, I never heard him say, get to the drone. I I did see a weird clip someone put through on Instagram the other day, and it was like a quadcopter and it had a like a Chinese baby hanging from the bottom. Yeah, did you see that? Yep, I did. (laughs) What? I said, what the fuck? Yeah, honestly, there was a baby hanging from the bottom of this thing, and I went, how? Like that stuff goes onto the internet, and you think, what the hell? Like there are some crazy people, and I guess that's why you have these regulations as well, because you know, for us, we go, oh, okay, you're going to put a camera on there, that's cool. But yeah, <laughs> there will be retards out there that go, I think I'll strap my baby to this yeah. helicopter, you know, and then they yeah. immediately go it's into just the a corona bomb. Oh, Albert! Oh my god! <laughs> so your aviation experience prior to you starting this business what uh, you are an aviation engineer is that right yeah aeronautical engineer so not a uh a, yeah so i went to went to uni through the air force and studied um aeronautical engineering so i'm not a, a lamey or a technician that can sign off on actually doing maintenance but i'd be when i was in the air force i'd sort of i'd have the job where you'd be working with those people and um or you know managing groups of technical people that would look after aircraft and so you know a management and very document heavy type role but with that role you obviously had experience in the process for, yeah uh yeah a little bit okay. what did you do so, in the air force if you don't mind me asking um oh well i, I went off to the air force straight out of school so like all all good kids that had seen top gun i joined up uh to go, <laughs> to, to go and be a fighter pilot and uh they how'd that work out yeah not so good <laughs> you were not in Africa. <laughs> no, definitely not. I was too tall to start with, but no, they had um, they, <coughs> they so, sign you up and you go off to uh, you go off to the college and start studying, and then when you're two years into the um, into the process, you go and do uh, well in Australia at least you go and do or went when I was there, you go and do flight screening, which is basically they take you out to Tamworth. Um, and you jump with in a plane with some flight instructors, and they uh, push you to see how fast you can learn. Because the, you know, the adage is that they can teach anyone how to fly. It's just a matter of how fast uh, you can learn how to do it. Um, and so we went and on the two weeks worth of flight screening. And at the same time as I worked out that I really wasn't that great flying a plane, the Air Force worked out that I really wasn't that great at learning how to fly a plane. And so <laughs> being a fighter pilot is a dream. Disappeared pretty quick. <laughs> how did they how did they communicate that bad news to you did they did they let jody, you say, jody it's, it's simple he went he went below the flag deck that's how you get <laughs> out but the tower to, you're gone man he did a 12 o'clock in a plane <laughs> i said that's not good enough <laughs> did you really see that nick or were you just making that up <laughs> <laughs> so then and then so from there yeah so from what, there I was what, like, what you transitioned to the mines i mean that's is that just because the money was calling you and or it was just that was the uh, thing to do uh, like i was a i'm an aeronautical engineer so i've trained as an aeronautical engineer in australia and there's not a particularly huge aviation industry in australia is there no not building lots of planes so 
turns out uh, you're probably an aeronautical engineer is not that qualified to do a great deal. And the mines, <laughs> they were really desperate for people. And they were suckers enough to take me on. Did you? So, so what were you doing? Were you like, were you were you driving a dumper truck? No, no. You, I was, um, they, they gave you I a was, spade. Yeah, spade. <laughs> I was in maintenance management, so I looked after uh, a um, big team of people, and we managed the operation of like um, car dumpers and stackers and reclaim, uh, reclaimers and shiploaders. So all the iron ore um, that BHP produced was dug out of the ground 700 kilometres away, on a tra- and then transported to the port on a train. And we had a bunch of huge industry um, up at a place called Port Headland, and we looked after the maintenance of the car dumpers, which had basically they'd tip the trains upside down to unload them, um, and then the stackers, which would you know create the huge stockpiles that you see in photos at ports and stuff, um, and then yeah, all this large infrastructure. So we looked after the maintenance of maintenance for that. You met yeah, so your business partner you got now. So you met him while you're in the mines, or that sort of yeah, while well, I was in the mines. No, no, I um I uh I enjoyed. Uh, Photography is a bit of a hobby, and um, I managed to convince somebody to let me shoot uh, a video for them, which, yeah, as you do. I'm, I, what, what, I, what kind of video was it? Yeah, was she oh, okay with it? Yeah, <laughs> no, she wasn't. <laughs> and I was a, um, a, a, I had a project. He's backtracking, he's backtracking, he's backtracking. He's like, uh-oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. How do we get here? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, whatever the content was, I shot a video and I didn't Great. have a clue how to edit it. And um, right, so I'm chatting with my wife, um, my now wife, who's my fiance at the time, um, who's a she's a school teacher, and she put the word out um, with the media teacher at her uh, at the college that she teaches at, and who put me in touch with a chap that had graduated a couple of years later, um, which was Tom and. Uh, that I work with now, and Tom came along and dug me out of a hole and edited the best uh, video that he could make with the footage that I'd shot, and then I can't, I shouldn't say that, I convinced somebody else to... uh, (laughs) We can edit this, although, you know, I'm very bad at editing, so... (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the risk, I've listened to all the podcasts. The edits are chopping and chopping, most of the stuff stays in, that's all good. Um, Yeah, but like, uh, Tom edited this video for me, and then... um, a year later, I did this, uh, another video and I needed someone to edit it again and Tom stepped up and uh, took it on and that was about the same time as myself and another guy had had the idea for this uh, drone shenanigan and, yeah, we started working together because he's a, you know, a cinematographer and had a real, has a really good eye for uh, for capturing images um, and so we started working. He started working with me as the camera operator with the drones and his contacts um, in the film industry were what uh, got the drone business off the ground to start with and then it sort of evolved from there so we you know, we built the, built built our own drones and then we built our own parts for the cameras to go on the drones and that sort of started with a, um, a CNC router in the garage at home and progressed <laughs> from there. How long ago was that? So that was when did uh, you? Six, I think it was six years ago. Seven, wow. seven years we've been in business. Six years, yeah, we yeah, no, my daughter's uh, six years old this year, and I, the router turned up um, just before she was born. So, yeah, <clears throat> we ordered a, a imported uh, router from China that's made out of melted down Coke cans at, um, <laughs> at, 
I, 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 I kid you not. The, the gantry that uh, I, was, I, was, I made, I made um, a, a Christmas present on it. it was from a, a table I made on it uh, at one stage, and it was four pieces that like interlocked like a jigsaw. So each piece. Um, it was exactly the same part. Then it goes together in a jigsaw. Like the first part went together with the second part, no worries. Second, third part went together with the th- uh, third part, no worries. By the time we try and put the fourth part together, it's like a good half inch gap between uh, where this, where they're supposed to interlock back together. And I thought, what the hell is going on here? And then I got some help with somebody that knew what they were doing. Who came along and um, we ran a dial indicator over the gantry on this machine. And it was way off, way off. And then we started having a look, a look around, and the actual gantry on the machine, they'd just twisted the whole thing. It was made out of aluminium, twisted it around to get it to line up with the bolt holes, and was so out of whack it wasn't funny. So we oh pulled God. it apart, mm. assembled it to close to square again, and uh, off we went. <laughs> so have you still got it? Still got it. Still make parts on it now. Do you really? Oh wow! Yeah, yep. Yeah. It's got. Uh, it, you know, we we bought that. Um, we were building the drones. It was we designed our own drones and then hunted around to try and get carbon fiber cut. And there's not a lot of people that want to cut carbon fiber for you. Um, and no. I had that sucks. Yeah, so I had had one person that cut it out on like a large format um, router, like the sort of thing that a, a cabinet maker might have. Um, and after that, I was like, yeah, I don't really want to do any that for you again. So we started hunting around. And I tried water jet cutting it. That doesn't work. Tried lasering it. That doesn't work. And bit the bullet to import a router off uh, AliExpress. And so went on to AliExpress and found myself a router and brought that into the country. And that's what we used to make drones. Wow. Mm. Yeah. And, and then six years <laughs> later, you've literally just installed a horizontal machine center from Akuma. Yep. Fuck it now. <laughs> There's going to be lots of people That's going, pretty awesome. okay, how do I get from <laughs> buying a router to buying uh, a, basically a million dollar machine to stick into my shit? Because that is, <laughs> this is the bit that they want to listen to. So we should yeah. talk about something else now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's pretty, pretty, pretty impressive for sure. I mean, that's, I mean, we all laugh about it, but you, your story, you know, going from not being top gun to, the mines to meeting somebody to the garage to yeah a, a machine like that i mean that's a, that's a really cool story and that's not an everyday tale that you'll hear somebody talk about i mean it's 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 you should be proud of what you got done for sure thanks what what, what what you know how did you so you you know you had the drone business it was mm. it was obviously not really the, the money spinner that you'd hoped because of this flooding of the market of, you know, very, very accessible drone systems that, you know, like you say, yeah. lots of people now, they put GoPros on them and all the rest of it, and people make, to the untrained eye, relatively they make, they make good, good stuff. Like that's, that's the yeah. kicker, hey? You get yeah. It. It's the difference between really freaking awesome and really, really good doesn't, yeah. uh, you don't, 90 time, 90% of the time, really good is good enough um yeah. yeah so we ended up with this when you go back to when we were doing the big drones it's like and the cameras at the time you had uh you could have like a red um red american company make um you know, the red epic cameras now they've got red heliums and weapons um you know they're the they're the right form factor shape for a whole uh 
um, quality camera that you can put onto a drone. Um, and I heard that. I've already opened So one. I'm having a beer. Sorry. Yeah. yeah don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the, um, yeah, like the cameras are really freaking expensive. And so we, you know, I sold, uh, I sold a house and went and bought two cameras, um, for us to fly oh on the drones. <laughs> wow. Wow. Holy shit. Really? Yeah. You sold your house to buy two cameras. Well, uh, not, not the entire reason why I sold the house, but the proceeds from selling <laughs> went straight to buying two cameras. Wow. Um, now that, so that's, that's also the difference, isn't it? When you go, I am all in. I'm, all- I'm gonna, I'm gonna go balls deep with this mm-hmm. and yeah. and you basically said i back myself i'm gonna i'm gonna make this work and that is if anyone's listening to this that's that is the difference you say i'm in and that's what you've done <laughs> yeah <laughs> I once you're in you're stuck you're, I mean, you've got to make it over work. here in the states we could go to costco and buy a bag of bagels and then swing by the recreation and pick up a drone and, and we'd be in business but i wouldn't have to sell my house to do that mm. yeah so these cameras right this is a um, there's a Germany company called Ari. So you had like, you know, it's Coke and Pepsi is the analogy, but like you got Ari cameras and red cameras. And that's every, everything that's shot now. Oh, Sony makes some good cameras too. But like, basically, if you look at you know, everything that goes to the Oscars, it's pretty much shot on those couple of cameras. And Ari right. released, released a camera that was the right form factor to go on the drone. And the, literally the day that they announced that that camera was, uh, was available. We signed up to get one, um, and we didn't have the money to buy one of those cameras, but uh, we signed up, put our deposit down, and then started running around trying to find finance to, to buy that camera. So we already had two reds, and then um, we put our name down for the Arri camera, and we got the, the third one into Australia. And the caper, well, the reason for that is like my, lots of film equipment, when because a film job is only for a short period of time. Lots of the gear isn't actually owned by the people that are producing the film. They hire everything in. It's all short-term rentals. Right. Um, but when the drone business was super young, you try calling up a rental store and saying, hey, can we hire um, your really, really expensive camera and your stupid expensive lenses and we'll just hang it <laughs> from the bottom of our drone for a film shoot? <laughs> and they're like, nope. That, uh, that doesn't fly. And so... Yeah, that was like if we if we wanted to be in business doing drones, we needed to buy this camera, and so we bought that camera, um, and we yeah we used it on the on the drones a heap and on the gimbals as well, and that's like buying that camera was the catalyst that um, moved our business forward um, when the drones died out because that uh, that particular camera, the Arri, um, the Alexa Mini. With the gimbals that people wanted to shoot on and the drones, um, if you're in you know, if you're in Hollywood, for example, and you're doing a, a shoot that needs to use uh, that camera, and they want to use it on the gimbal, they want to use it handheld or on a tripod, or they want to use it on the drone, you can walk down to the rental store and you can hire them. Like like that's it. You need three cameras for the shoot. No worries, you hire three cameras. Um, but where we are in you know, Tasmania, we had the only camera in the state. So if we went on a shoot and we took the camera on the on the um, on the shoot, we had to be able to use it on the drone. We had to be able to use it on the gimbal. We had to be able to use it handheld, mounted on the car. In any of these um, different ways that the cinematographer would use the camera, we had to um, be able to make it work and make it work quickly. And typically, like back then, it might take somebody that wasn't 
that didn't change the camera between the different modes of operation all the time, it could take them anywhere from 20 minutes to 40 minutes to um, disassemble a camera and reassemble it to be ready to use in a different mode of operation. Um, and you got to think about these cameras. It's not like uh, a camera that you pick up and um, like a DSLR or anything. It's like you have let, there's systems on it. Like you've got um, motor control systems for the focus and the iris. You've got the lenses that'll have matte boxes on it when it's used in some configurations. Monitors get bolted onto it. Viewfinders get bolted on it. You've got to bolt the batteries onto it. Um, like it's all it's a very modular, modular. type system. Yeah, <clears throat> and so it it would it would take people a long time to change those different modes and the crux of what we did was that we made it so you could change modes in under a minute wow um, and that was just th- out of necessity like if we'd had the ability to, to have more cameras when we went on a job we probably would have hired another camera to take it along to make work easier but we didn't have any other cameras in the state and so we started developing parts to be able to make it easier to um to change modes from the gimbal to handheld um and that's how we ended up trying to make um, and trying to make three-dimensional shapes out of aluminium on the router, which turns out doesn't work so well. Um, <laughs> Especially when it's made out of Coke cans. That's it. It's aluminium <laughs> cutting aluminium. It's, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work very well at all. No. Um, and wow. Like, we started – like we put some pictures up on Instagram <clears throat> of the types of things that we'd tried to make. And there was uh, – interest in it and we wanted to push the parts that we were making and so we went out and bought um went to the bank again and asked for some money and went out and bought a small um optimil um so like yeah it's a 10 tool bt30 um machine with a little what's the travel on it's like uh, eight inches i don't even know what that is in uh imperial no, so you know, like, no, no we, got, we got enough southern hemisphere people metric? here do it in millimeters. <laughs> yeah, it's like 200 by 400 travel. So yep. I can uh, just finally to... someone talks my language. It's fucking awesome. Right <laughs> yeah. So we got, we got new that money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got that. Got that little machine and had that uh, shoehorned into the garage at home um, and started trying to make parts on it to make it easier for us to. Um, yeah, so we could build better drones with it and so we could build better camera plates and adapters to be able to change from different modes, so from the drone to handheld and stuff quicker and started with that. And then um, then we also started working on trying to be able to carry larger camera lenses. So if you've got um, – like a gimbal has to be balanced, so you've got to be able to get the centre of gravity of anything that's in a gimbal, whether it's a camera gimbal or you – know, navigation ins systems whatever it all has to be balanced so you're tr- always trying to get the center of um gravity of the system in this in the actual center of all the three axes yeah and cinematographers always want to have different lenses on the camera and it's not of it's never it's, ne- it's never about this lens actually balances really nicely and works really well it's like it's all about the look so you've got to get this uh particular lens it's a really whack shape or super large and then put on the gimbal and balance it. And so we made these little uh, brackets that let you offset the um, center of gravity of the whole camera package and some of the gimbal structure itself to be able to balance really large lenses on the um, on the gimbals and the lenses. And large lenses are like two and a half, two point eight kilos sure. in size, um, which is yeah, it's a fair. So, so hang on. So 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 just so just just let's just back the truck up a little. Bit. <laughs> 
So you bought this, would you say you bought an Octomel? Yeah, Optimal, that's the brand. It's yeah. like a, a yeah. German design made in China. Yeah. Um, small. So you bought that. So you had gone from like router experience to, and, and, and how, so how, you know, what were you, what were you using to program the router? Like, what was what was yeah. the feed source for it? That I had the uh, a little bit of software called um, Vectric, I think it is Vectric VCarve. Um, people use it for routers to make decorative signs with, and um, it can do some like flat sheet nesting. Okay. But, so yeah, you, you like you had to do it. You do a drawing in CAD, and then you could import a uh, yeah. a two dimensional DXF file into and, it, and you nest it and go from there. Yeah. yeah so so going from that. To then a three-axis machine, mm-hmm. like th- there's quite a big learning curve there. That's not a that's not an overnight. Mm. You don't suddenly go, oh, uh, okay, I've just because I mean buying a machine is fine, but it's no good if you have no idea how to use it. So yeah. how did yeah. you how did you get to the point where you could actually use it productively? I broke a lot of tools. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm still breaking tools. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, look, I yeah, I didn't, I, I literally had no idea what I was doing, um, but I knew at the, I knew the end goal was that we wanted to be able to make these parts, and we'd, um, we'd designed parts, and we'd gone through the process of trying to have the parts um, made elsewhere, and you know, you got to think, like for a tiny business at the time, the cost of doing super lightweight, flimsy as parts. That you you send those out to proto to get to prototype quantities of you know, four or eight parts. Not too many people want to machine those, um, especially you know, when the designs are a little bit whack because you haven't actually seen the physical part. And so we went through this process. We designed a bunch of parts and sent them out to get manufactured. And prices came back in that was just hideous because you know they weren't doing them on scale. Um, and we did find somewhere to make them, and they made made them for us. And it took like three months for the parts to come back after we'd agreed on the price. And the parts came back, and they had defects on them um, where features had just been missed. So we had to send the parts back again, and they got the defects rectified so that we could see that they worked. And then we assembled all the parts to test the idea, and the idea sucked. And so we'd had this process of like we wanted to make we wanted to design um, new parts, but the turnaround time from concept to having a physical part in, your ha- in our hand was thousands of dollars and um, four months. And it was that if if we were going to be able to design parts um, in any way, shape or form, that turnaround time had to go from months to days or weeks or you know, if it's uh, a hot topic at the moment, it can be a day from design to, to making a part. Yeah, with the capability we've got now but that was like the catalyst to we knew that the solution of not having a machine was unacceptable and so it was what's a machine that we can afford um and we started hunting around for it and then it was like okay we'll have to learn how to program this thing and started looking around for for software to use to to program it and then so, so what do you what do you use now um yeah so now i use fusion um because you got to remember when i was looking at uh Looking for an Optimil, a CNC machine that costs, you know, forty thousand dollars, and a software license for some of the fancy systems costs as much as the machine. It's like, whoa, hang on a tick, I'm doing backflips here. Mm, yeah, but but that's that's that 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 was the enabler, wasn't it? You, you know, you bought yeah. your machine, you you found a software system that 
you could you could basically play on at home. It doesn't mm. cost you the earth, and that yeah. enabled you to that's it basically and, kickstart your business. And yeah, not wanting to sound like a, an an Autodesk ad, but that ability to do <laughs> to do the design, to do the CAM programming, to make something work out that it doesn't work because uh, it very rarely works first time, and go all the way back to that iteration without having to do multiple exports of files um, from you know, from a design from a design system to a CAM system to a machine or to different people just is so fast. What would be the most exciting project that you've been involved in? And you go, fuck, that's my the stuff that I've made has been involved in this. I get, yeah. you know, what is it? What's your what's your proudest part? Yeah, no, I I really enjoy it when I go. To, when you go to the movies and you, you know, most people when the final uh, final curtain falls, um, you'll everyone will get up out of the seats and leave. But uh, these days, if I get the chance to go to the movies, I really enjoy. Uh, I actually sit there, roll, <laughs> the watch credits. through the credits. Yeah, and yeah, I recognise that name. Yep, I've I've, I've ha- had a conversation, or Tom has had a conversation with them, and they've got our parts, and our parts were on that. Wow, um, it's it's cool. Um, how yeah, how no. big an impact is Tom on the business? Oh, huge! The fact that we're two totally different people. You know, I'm a an engineer, and Tom's a cinematographer. Is the fact that we're um, completely different mindsets in looking at the same problem gives us different answers. The fact the fact that we you know, we've got an engineer and an artist looking at the same problem. Yeah, we wouldn't ha- we wouldn't have made the parts that we've made without uh, the input of both. Stop the podcast! <laughs> hey, Chris! Hey, Jody! <laughs> why, <don't you> t- <laughs> why don't you tell us about your business and and promote it like so everyone that really wants to have a gimbal on the end of their car, they can use your products to do so, especially if they want to use that car for the porn industry. Go! <laughs> <laughs> in the pink Cadillac with a gimbal on the front. Yeah, do it. Go. <laughs> Wait, I thought it was a micro bus. <laughs> the group, the group porno. The bus with the dwarfs on it. What are you guys saying just out of the week that are like it's nothing's that big in the porn industry? It's just really small people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, no one said that. Uh, okay, go. This is not promoting your business. Go. go. We don't know what business he's talking about. Oh, I think I'm it's lost. all sorts of business. He's he lost it. himself. He's like, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no. I make gimbals for Cadillacs and, and pink Cadillacs. Go. <laughs> How did that get there? Yeah. I don't know. Um, hey, thanks for listening, everyone. It's uh, Chris here and Ignite GG. We make uh, some pretty interesting camera parts for gimbals, drones, and making it easier for workflow on set. Um, and big shout out to the guys here from uh, the hotline for taking the time out of their day to have a chat with me. Um, what's your you What's your Instagram? What's your Instagram name? You can come along and see what we do on uh, Made by Chris F. Um, or on Ignite Digi. Uh, Ignite Digi Australia has our business and it's what all the parts we make and some of the behind the scenes of how we make the parts and the trials and tribulations you can see on uh, Made by Chris F. Um, nice. and come and check out some of the machines that we're running. Very cool. Um, we are, uh, That's very cool. So uh, before you, you start rambling on about your, your, your not porn industry related <laughs> gimbals, uh, let's get on with the podcast. <laughs>
So we've got a we've got a few questions here from uh, off the Instagram as we're talking about Instagram as well. Mm-hmm. So I figure we might as well sort of scroll through a few of them. Um, it no, says, I don't have feet. You don't have what? <laughs> webbed feet. You don't have webbed feet. That is funny, eh? <laughs> <laughs> That's from Big CNC guy. He's like he's an Australian, eh? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think he might I got, be in I got, somewhere. I got five. I got five toes on each feet, and they're not joined together, apart from where they're supposed to be. Is that a Tasmanian thing? No, Tasmanian things are two heads. Oh. (laughs) But the question that the pragmatic redneck would ask is, is your big toe bigger than the rest of your toes? (laughs) I decline to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, no more questions. So this, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if if if, uh, if Ed is in direct competition with you or not. But Ed underscore Radcliffe, and it looks Ed like Radcliffe. he makes mm-hmm. he makes sort of motion camera accessories. Yeah. Looks right. Yeah. Um, so he just says, how do you deal with running the business as a partnership, and do you have a legal document in place to officiate it? Absolutely. Um, right. no, we don't, we're not a partnership. We run, we're a, um, a proprietary limited company. Yeah? Only a tiny company, but it's set up from day dot as a company as with that. shares. And it's like straight down the line, there's the percentage that I've got that he's got. And uh, yeah, so it's, yeah. You went, went, from, from the get go, you, you set it up as you should do when you're, when you're starting these yeah, things, which can it. be missed when, you know, other people might not. They go, oh, that's okay. We can sort that out later. You did it from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, uh, Frank, the CNC machinist, wants to ask, are you related to Fox Racing? No, I'm not. I'm not, unfortunately. The, uh, they'd probably probably able to make all sorts of cool parts for them. Yeah. <laughs> you might have done some video cinematography work for them, though, maybe. We've definitely done cinematography work that's had their parts in it. Right. Okay. So, also, Nicholas Hackerwatch, if I've, or maybe I've done that wrong. What's the coolest thing you've seen in the machining world, apart from Tony Klauser? (laughs) What? (laughs) Hank. (laughs) What the fuck? I think that's Hank Hank, Hank stickers popping up everywhere. Okay. All right. I won't, I won't. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. Josh from uh, Nicholas Harko Watches. I visited uh, his workshop in uh, Sydney uh, uh, last last year, I think it was, yep. and it's exceptionally tidy. Like they're doing some crazy stuff, manufacturing uh, watches with. They've got a, a Kern Pyramid Nano and a, a Makino Wire EDM machine, and then a little Citizen RO4 um, Swiss lathe, trying to set up to build um, you know, fully Australian manufactured watches from wow. the get go. Like they're setting up from um, they've they've got a really interesting story. You should get them on board for uh, yeah. Their story is bonkers. Um, I'm actually I've just clicked on him now, and as I'm scrolling through, the first thing I see is a massive huntsman spider. <laughs> and I go, he's posted a picture of uh, I don't know, like I don't know, the, the huntsman spiders are well, they're massive and they run very very fast, and it scares the living shit out of me because they look like dinner plates. But they're spiders, and that's yeah. on his thing. Wow! Fuck that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, go on to his go on to his Instagram now. It's Nicholas Hack O Watch, all one word, and 
the yeah. video of him going to this huntsman spider is well i've got to turn off because it's terrifying <laughs> it's just absolutely terrifying yeah, they've, but, they've got a crazy set they uh <clears throat> say josh who would have he's uh the son that uh probably would have put the question there on instagram he's yeah third third generation watchmaker um wow. his dad's nicholas harko and then he's i don't know what the grandfather's name was but immigrated to australia and they had a business uh repairing watches and then uh, the big- nicholas harko watch sorry yeah. i is mispronunciation yeah, yeah gotcha and then, uh, you know, the the big watch manufacturers said screw you you can't repair watches to the right standard we're going to stop selling parts to you and then they turned around and said, screw you, we'll build watches. And uh, they're setting up from scratch to manufacture mechanical watch movements here in Australia. Jeepers. Well, we won't, we'll, we'll get him on, <laughs> on the podcast instead, and uh, we'll carry on talking to you for now. Right on. <laughs> uh, so let's have a look. There's, uh, is there another one on here? Um, PDM Machinist. So it says, the new machine you got took days to install. Never had to wait more than a day after arrival in our <laughs> shop. So what was it like for you to have to wait to play with the new humongous? Is that how you spell humongous? It doesn't look right. Because uh, I love figuring out a new machine. So I think we should talk about that. So, sorry, you've gone, you went, you went, you went router, Optimil, yeah. and then, and then you, and then you started, like, how did, how did your relationship go into with, getting the akumas because you know tony and i are very big akuma fans Mm -hmm. and um you know we i oh i've actually all of them are probably akuma fans Uh, apart from shane who's a goes to mazak school and then like how did you get to (laughs) (laughs) you just said that like a black girl How'd you do that, Jody? You don't. Sorry, I don't mean to. I'm gonna take your ass off, my son. Oh, yeah. We we had an interesting interesting ride from that. So we had, uh, yeah, we didn't know what we were doing with machines to start with, and so I had this um, job that I was running, the Optimil that we bought. We were making parts and that, and I had a you know a job set up on that, and it was the coolant nozzle was spraying into the vice at just the uh, right angle. To get the uh, the cutter, and then when the when it travels to one spot, the machine's not enclosed on the top. The coolant hits just the right spot and shoots <laughs> up out out of the roof of the machine and lands on the electrical cabinet at the back of the machine. Mm. And you know, it's the machine. The machine's good for the price point that it's at, and uh, that coolant that was on top of the electrical cabinet it made its way inside the electrical cabinet and mm. it went onto the nice. y axis. It went onto the y axis servo drive and kaboom. Went the, uh, yeah, like it went, it went with a bang, um, and we had interesting experience trying to get a spare part for that with that that machine with who it was supported through. Um, we got in touch with them and basically we called them up and emailed them for yep. We're at this stage we were producing parts that we had to ship out to sell, and it was like that was the only machine and it wasn't working. Um, and so I called them up, and they said, "Yeah, yeah, we'll get a we'll get a price to you for a replacement part. No worries." And by the time they'd responded with a quote on the um, a quote for the replacement part and a lead time of two weeks to get the part, we'd already sourced the the servo driver from the servo driver manufacturer out of China, and had it installed and the machine running again. And at wow. that point, that point, and so that was it went down on a th- on. Um, on a Thursday, we had it ordered 
Thursday afternoon. We spoke spoke to the, the Australian reps on Thursday at the same time because we needed it. We looked for the OEM that made them. We had it ordered on Thursday. It was delivered by Monday, installed by Monday afternoon, and got the quote for the replacement part from the Australian agents sometime on the Monday or Tuesday. And I was like, that's not good enough. Um, and so the next machine that we bought, we imported it directly straight out of Taiwan with no Australian agents whatsoever um, after that experience. And that was that was an okay experience. They were super good to deal with. But um, all the while, we'd been talking... Uh, I've been talking or trying to engage with people to go to the next level of machines because you know, we the parts that we were making were good and there was a, an appetite for them in the world. Um, and having you know, a small CNC machine and an aluminium router uh, stuck in the garage at home, not very many people wanted to talk to us <laughs> you know, at all. You, know, you call me up asking about a machine? What, do you, what have you got at the moment? What are you making? Uh, yeah, okay. And you know, we called up... Uh, one of the, the big name American companies uh, for their 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 rep their rep in the country tried to offer us a mini mill and it's like yeah we're already <laughs> yeah. like at that point what's the next the next level and it's like and yeah, yeah. then and we went through and we spoke to um, yeah, people from Makino and they're like oh yeah so you want a machine and pallet changing and yeah we'll send you a quote for that I mean, nothing didn't hear from them at all um, yeah they were just blew us off. But Akuma, they spoke to us. They spoke to us when we were in the garage at home, um, and others along the way. Other other people that we'd spoke, or sorry, other machine dealers that we'd spoken to were like, "You ne- you you can't afford a Japanese machine. You won't be able to afford a Japanese machine." Hmm. Um, and one Japanese machine dealer took the time to speak to us when we were in the garage, and we've now bought two Japanese machines from that Japanese machine dealer in the last twelve months. That's a lot of Japanese machines. Yeah, that's a lot of Akuma. Yeah. So who is your rep? Can you can you um, say that or or you're not? Oh uh, yeah, Mark. So, oh no, it was like um, Mark, Mark Richards, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. That's yep. the guy that I've been dealing with, and he's, he's a good guy. Nice I've guy. met him yeah. a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, and so he, uh, you know, at one point we were uh, thinking about getting a turning centre, and it was you know, never ended up buying a turning centre. But um, there's a a company here in Tassie that makes some that have got uh, they've got. And a Kuma Genos and a couple of DMU 50s um, and uh, yeah, Murray um, Lathe and they make some really cool um, military or drone stuff for uh, government type applications. Um, and they were sort of I'd met them um, and they were basically they hands down were like really stoked with the Akuma Genos that they had. And so when I was looking for the next machine, I gave them a call and it just happened that. With the um, the bad calls, oh sorry, not the bad calls, like you know, getting blown <laughs> off by some some machine dealers. Um, it's like, yeah, I don't need to deal with them. And when I called up a Kuma, they were like, you know, we let's talk about finding what works for you. And yeah, first first two times I called them up, they uh, I didn't buy anything, or it wasn't yeah, the prices were a lot more expensive than what I thought they'd be. Um, but the fact that they talked to me each time and when I did call them up on the third time and it was like um, because of that good relationship that we had, it was like mm. we them up, it was like we've signed a lease on a warehouse, we're moving out of the garage, when can you get me that machine? And I need it yesterday and they got me one as quick as they could. Wow. What was the first Akuma you bought? What was it? Uh, so I bought a Genos M560V, just a, a three-axis mill. It's a good uh, machine. That's yeah, a great 
Yeah. It's a really, really good, solid machine. Great, great value. I think it's a great machine. Yeah. That, um, I agree. So we've had, the, yeah, <clears throat> the machine that we imported before we got the, the that one was a fourth axis machine. So a little, uh, like a drill and tap center, BP30, <coughs> super fast machine without a lot of grunt. Um, and we that made all that made all the parts that's um, multi-sided parts that we that we do. And then we got the Genos, and we got here, which is a three-axis machine, and that um, has done. Uh, we looked at the the spindle counter, on it, and so just with a couple of us working here, we've in ten months it's run sixteen hundred hours, um, which is yeah, that's not too bad. If there's uh, we're not we're not running night shifts all the time. We've done a couple of a uh, couple of months of split shifts to get uh, more hours um, loading the machines, but um, yeah. And then after that, it was like we can need to go bigger again. Um, so, but let's go for some automation, and that's where we got the pallet pool. Uh, I remember watching your stories when you you got your first Akuma, and <laughs> it was like uh, I'm not gonna say look, I'm not say a total kid in a candy shop, but you just felt <laughs> it, it just sat. It just I think you sort of knew that actually, like when you get into being a and having a proper machine. The difference is Next it's, level. Chalk and che- it's chalk and cheese. It's yep. like okay, you can be and, and look, there's you can where, make you've, some- where, where you've started. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with you know you start with a router and you, you continue up because that's part of the journey and that's I think that is that's, that's actually that's a really nice transitional way. But when you suddenly get from okay, I bought a machine that was it was a bit cheaper. And it was maybe you know it, it it looks like a it looks like a proper CNC machine and it yeah, looks well, like it's, it's enclosed. So the guard every every machine looks like a proper machine if it's got guards yeah. on it, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right, it does. And it's not until you buy a quality, uh, I believe, you know, and I'm I feel like I'm biased here, but I, I know correct me if I'm wrong. But when you suddenly get that first experience with a, a Japanese-made high quality cnc machine you you you, you almost sort of go fuck uh, mm. if we had this four years oh, ago or whatever like uh, i, I just i can't token, even like four years ago imagine like, when you when you got the router and you walk into the walk into the bank like, i want to borrow the money to buy a horizontal with pallet pool <laughs> yeah. with what <laughs> but, yeah but i that, know i know it's i know it's a stepping stone but yeah but, yeah, that uh, we had a one of the parts that we make a few of um, we make out of standardised stock. So we um, I've got a system where I make most of the parts are out of a standard size stock. I just vary the thickness of the cut plate that we get in, um, and the supplier that we buy buy from was out of stock of the um, of the the right thickness cut plate, um, and so they had to supply. The next size up, so instead of like 31.8 mil plate, we had got 38.38.1 plate sent down to us. Um, and on the other machines that I had, like that added a truckload of time to the cycle time. So this part that was, you know, it, just just taking off that mach- that extra material in the um, in the L and K machine that we had you know, added 12 minutes or something to the cycle time. Now if I if they run out of stock. And I like run out of the thinner plate and have to send me the thicker stuff. The Akuma eats it up in like 22 seconds. I got a, I got a question. This this just this 
it just in from at Infotech. He wants to know, wink, wink, have you ever used any of your drones or your badass cameras uh, in adult entertainment movies, such as flying over someone's backyard and zooming in on the pool boy (laughs) while he's cleaning the pool? No, no. We've done some cool stuff where we've been uh, alien or uh, extraterrestrial life looking into people's backyards, but... uh, None of it's had the pool boy in there. Okay. The pool boy is key, I think. But yeah. there is no doubt in my mind that your products are involved. Are potentially used for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if, in, if anyone's in using this, it, my part for adult scenario. industries, can someone please <laughs> let Jody and the boys know? <laughs> I've got to say, uh, I can't remember if it, was, if it was Boomer or whether it was Tony. They sent, they sent through... A video of a drone that had a dildo hanging off of a gimbal, and, <laughs> and it flew. In, and flew in. That was that was that was, that was me. That was from one of my old friends, oh. and it's, yeah, it would just like yeah, it just like zeroed right in and bullseye. That's because yeah. they were they didn't have to go through FAA regulations and they could use that's, <laughs> they did not need a license for that. That's for sure. You know what, Jody? Jody, I'm pretty sure it was just the tip. Oh, Albert. So, Chris, what what's what's next? Where where does Ignite Digi go next? You've you've grown exponentially in such a short period of time. Are you worried that this could be a bubble or do you think that there is there is another chapter that's going to carry on and you're going to build into something even bigger and better? Well, we're going to keep going because we have to. Um, Good. <laughs> yeah. wait, Sorry, wait, it, was wait, a lo- it was a loaded question, wait, wait, I know, wait, but, wait, but wait, you've got to be realistic as well. Oh, totally. Once you're all in, like, and we've been all in every other month. It's like on, that's what it seems like sometimes. It's like... We're all we are really all in now. Okay, we'll sign up and uh, and get this machine. And so this machine, and we have to make some seriously big repayments on it every month. And yep. it's yeah, you know, they we have yeah have to make repayments on both the Akumas. Um, so we got to make it work. We can't not make it work. It's either going to be make make it work making the parts that we design and come up with, which is what we want to do. Um, and if we get caught short, then we're going to have to do something else to make payments. Yeah, that's a very, yeah. very good so, point because what you're saying, um, out of the guys on the podcast, you know, not to put anybody out of place here, but myself and Albert are kind of in the same boat as you. I mean, no mm. matter what happens, you're going to have rent, you're going to have machine payments totally. or whatever it is. And it's like, it's, it's scary. It gets really scary. I mean, you can have a backlog of work and you're like, yeah, we got to get this shit cranked out or you could be like out looking for more work. But that's a very yep. good point. No matter what, they still want their money. That's it. Yeah, and, and that's uh, the challenge of small business, isn't it? It's like if you you work for yourself, you've you know, you got to you got to make the money to make the repayments for the equipment. You got to make the money to uh, pay for the house that you live in, and you got to pay for the school fees and food for the family. So exactly. there there, exactly. there is no choice for it to do anything else other than work. It has to. Yep. Do you do you find that it's harder? geographically where you're located oh hell yeah that's quite it's interesting because we've we've made some pretty cool stuff that um some some people have used that hasn't you know 
made light of day, which has been a bonus of being in our geographical location. Like the fact that we're down here, there's no prying eyes on, you know, nobody sees what we don't want them to see, um, and which is good in some aspects. But, you know, you, you think, uh, how long does it take you to get stock, Albert? You place an order for aluminium? How long does it take to come in? Oh, man, actually, that's, that's pretty that's pretty great or we're in a pretty great situation because I would say most aluminum stuff we can get in one day. Yeah. So, I'm so three like I could call like your three weeks you said? Three weeks. Wow. Yeah, that yeah. yeah, I mean your your whole scheduling and planning is is gonna be totally different than mm. than I'd say it's, most people's. And that could that could really throw you off too because it's really tough to kind of predict what's going to happen in a three-week time span. I mean, so much can happen in three weeks. Yeah, that's it. And so, yeah, like being based down here is uh, challenging. Um, Ed Ratcliffe that asked the question before about the, the partnership thing, when I met him uh, over in uh, Amsterdam last year at the at the trade show, was saying that he can have stuff anodized in a, if he – rushes it through the process can have turnaround in the next day um my parts to be anodized uh 10 days minimum like two weeks so it's it, wow so yeah, where's where you where's, where's, where's the closest anodizer for you is it actually in uh, tasmania so there is uh, there's a guy in, in tassie that does anodizing but he doesn't do he's not set up to do hard hard anodizing so we have to ship mm. all our stuff back to the mainland oh, to melbourne yeah so we get yeah, basically the the what so we use aluminium that is um, smelted in the USA. It's shipped in a container to Australia to Sydney. It's then we then order it from uh, someone in Sydney who cuts the plate to size. It then goes on a truck down to us. We machine it and send the machine parts to Melbourne to be anodised. Get the parts back down to Tassie and then we assemble um, and then we ship out. And so that's like a and if you've got, it's a minimum five weeks from um, going. Yeah, I need aluminium today to yeah. But part. but hold on. But that's only that's only a minimum of five weeks if you choose not to hold stock yeah. of aluminium. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so, been. So, uh, yeah, we have to, we have to hold enough stock so that the spindles don't stop turning too. Yeah. 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 But I mean, you could go the other way and go. Well, actually, what you're going to do is you're going to hold up X amount of capital in in. Yeah. In stock that's just sitting there and and it might not eventuate into anything because of orders slow down or whatever so that's the gamble isn't it or mm. or you could lose customers because suddenly your lead time is six seven weeks too long yeah that's it that's it, I mean, it, was, it yeah it was, you can't uh you can't pay people with uh with stock but you can't stop machining either so you've got to no you've got having the right balance and flow that's going to be interesting when we get this new machine up and running and cranking um, yeah, to see how fast we uh, burn through what we normally buy. Let's talk about let's 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 talk about your new machine. Mm. So what what is it that you've actually bought? So I've bought a uh, an Akuma MB four thousand, so four hundred mil horizontal with a ten pallet pool attached to it, and a hundred and forty six tool matrix um, changer bolted onto the side. Um, and yeah, the goal for that's to Oh, kind of got. I'm expecting to take me two to three months to get that thing to run, but uh, then we're going for eight thousand hours in a year. That's the goal. That's uh, that's that's around about what most machines, if you do the maths, should hopefully be able to produce. Yeah, is 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 that as a standard? So that because you've got a 
10 pool palette changer on it, <laughs> by default, you have already submitted to the fact that you are going to have quite a lot of stock raw material hanging around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So it's not, it, and, and I think this is, this is quite a good point. So, I mean, you, you, cause you know, all of us understand the, the cost of tooling and everything else. So machine cost is one thing. So, you know, you, you buy a machine for X amount of dollars. And then that's only a fraction of it. That, and then you start adding everything else on top of what you've done. Now, did you have to, did you have to upgrade your foundation before you put that on? No, lucky we've got enough concrete. Right. Okay. They're making enough. concrete in Tasmania. That's good. Yeah. They're not just so, using money to feed Tasmanian devils. <laughs> There's 40 bolts holding this thing down. That's yeah. Mind-boggling. Yeah. Albert, did you did you have to upgrade your foundation when you put your horizontal in? Um, no, we didn't. I mean, I think that we're probably we're on the border of needing to, but I think that we had like an 8-inch foundation down already. But it, it did have to get bolted to the floor. Not 40 bolts, but... We also didn't have like the pallet pool and like the huge magazine that he's got on there too. But I was going to say with, with the pallet pool like that, I mean, obviously he's not just committing to like having all that stock on hand, which I mean, I think the first thing I think about is like the amount of like money that you're carrying, like your, your, your carrying costs. And, you know, and then, but like, that's kind of the nature of your business too. Like, it seems to me like you've probably got a very high mix, low volume type environment. Yeah, that's it. So, and that's why we've gone to the horizontal. So we've had, you know, you know, it's like with the with the standard or with the, the um, a standard mill, like it's you get it set up to run apart, and you want to run as many parts as you can through. And so all of a sudden, you do that for until you run out of stock for that, and then you move on to the next sort of stock that you've got and make all the parts for that. Which then means because our product range has got I don't know off the top of my head. There'd be sixty or seventy parts that uh, that we make, um, yeah, because some some parts have got multiple components to it, and so we make all the bits to go inside it. And yeah, so you kind of need a lot of. Yeah, that's it. You, there's no 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 point having a battery carrier if I don't have the other components that go with it to make a finished product. Um, yep. So yeah, that's what I'm hoping for is to be able to get um, systems sorted out and in place. To instead of running batch production of making a lot of one part to over a 48 hour period or a, um, or a three day period to be able to make a couple of everything to then be able to better manage our inventory and our workload so that we've you know, so that yeah, we don't go like out of stock. It's like a tremendous amount of work too. Like I I remember from when I first got my horizontal, like just getting everything set up from like designing your fixtures because i mean mm-hmm. you're doing probably like a lot of production type fixturing because this, these are all going to be like repeat jobs and designing yeah. kind of your whole system you know like maybe you're making like some sort of hot swappable setup where you can like pull off a yeah. vice and put a fixture plate and have it be you know have it repeat without having to like probe the thing every time or whatever i mean that's just a astronomical it's, amount of work especially given that you've got 10 tombstones i mean that's uh, it's insane yeah so it's it's going to work out like the the thinking at the moment is that uh, it'll be 80 work locations. So um, and we'll have one master program which will run on every single tombstone, which will identify what um, is loaded onto the tombstone, so that anybody can load the machine. 
Um, how then, is it? How is it doing that exactly? I'm kind of curious about this. Yeah, so I've, um, I'm building a register of um, locations. So on the the work holding will be set up. Um, so at the moment, um, the probe will come in and it'll identify what I've got two shapes of tombstones. So I've got a like a traditional cross sort of shape, so four sides, and then I've got a, an L shape. So a, um, a two-sided tombstone which is offset from offset and Z. So it's like it's close to one side of the pallet face than the other. Um, and so that'll First, first thing that runs, spins tombstone around, comes in and probes to identify whether it's an L-shaped or a cross-shaped tombstone. If it's a cross-shaped tombstone, then it's got zero-point fixturing on it, um, and it'll run around and probe each of the eight locations to identify if something's been loaded to that zero-point fixture. Um, if nothing's been located, then a null value will be returned. Um, if something is located, then it will pr- probe a specific feature that is unique to that fixture, um, which through a series of macros will then go and call the appropriate program, which is specific to that fixture, and run that job. Um, and so yeah, that's so, a ton yeah. of work, man. That's a ton of work for for because you have like what two other guys, three other guys. Um, yeah. So we were we're we're now eight guys, but okay. um, it's only um myself. I've got myself and a machinist uh, who works with me um, out in the machine side of it. And then we've got uh, a, another chap who's a chef who uh, helps with operations. Um, and then the other five guys are um, Tom, who's like um, operations. We've got like shipping, assembly, packaging, um, and marketing. So you know, all, the, all the good photos and video content have to be made too for the part. Yeah, because so, yeah. your photos always look sharp. It's like, oh, shit. Chris looks amazeballs because he's doing some really cool stuff with his machine, but we don't really know what he's doing, but it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I think that's so, smart. The, 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 the zero point, you know, yeah, yeah sorry, your, your zero point fixture mm. in, and then you're, you know, you're, you're going to use the Akuma with uh, the probing system that's going to say, okay, if this equals whatever, jump to blah, yeah, blah, blah, point, and start and that program. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's a great way of right. doing it, and it's actually very simple. I know Albert's saying oh, it sounds like a ton of work, but once you set it up, that that would be super simple to run. Yeah, yeah, that's, of course. That's the idea of what we're trying to, or what I'm thinking, but um, it, it, that pushes us or pushes me from. Um, so we went, I went down the path of uh, spending a large amount, bunch of money on some verification software, so that I you know, can see on the backside of the tombstone, basically without plowing the spindle into anything too horrible, um, and using that or using the, the fusion software once i get that level of automation it's kind of starting to look like there's a lot more hand coding involved in making a system to run schmick i just i just wanted to touch base we were talking i wanted to back up a little bit on the foundation of you know concrete and and yeah. you know specific specific machine tools being placed i worked at a shop here in California that had, you know, it was all a Kuma shop. And in the beginning, they were all green machines. So the rapid traverse was was not very fast, but yet they still made super high quality parts. And so they brought in another machine to work on these bronze pucks that, you know, worked, you know, for Hewlett Packard back then. And it was a bridge machine. So this thing just literally hauled ass. I mean, it moved so fast that the actual machine tool itself was shaking and, and you mm-hmm. could feel it shake and you could feel the ground shake. And it was really weird because 
the machine, we were kind of out of room, so they placed it by the coolant station and, and by the... You know, <laughs> the coolant splashed over the tank? <laughs> well, I mean, it's where we mixed coolant and where you washed your hands. So we were always by this machine, and we were like, you know, the the, the machinists start talking and go, you know, this thing is fucking... It, it's hauling ass, and it is really shaking. So we actually just, for the hell of it, got a Sharpie out, because what they... To back up a little bit more, they didn't want to spend the money to dig a hole in the ground and, and re-up the foundation. They put it on six-inch concrete and thought it was going to be fine. So we got out a Sharpie, and we traced around the foot pads of it. And sure as shit, about a month later, it had moved like an inch and a half. And the quality of the parts coming off of it were all over the moving. place. Because it, was, oh. mm, it was moving on the ground. And yep. so once we finally proved it to the owners, <clears throat> they brought out their riggers, they picked it up, they placed it off to the side, they came in, they sawed the concrete, they dug down six feet, and they put in a pad, they put in some gravel, and they put in some more cement, and they isolated it, and they put the machine back. And when they ran that same program, that same machine, you you couldn't hear it, anything. Yep. And it was not right. shaking, it was yep. not moving, it was like... It was night and day, so there really is a thing about that, especially with yeah. machines that move fast. That it was, yeah. I mean, my my, I have an um, an old 2007 Haas here that doesn't move very fast at all, but when it is moving in rapid traverse, I mean, it it shakes the shit out of the benches next to it and and all the stuff mm. bolted to it, the holders and stuff, and and that's not even a fast machine at all. But you know, trying to do accurate work on regular concrete, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Oh, hey, hey, Chris, a question that we asked all of our guests, just all random. What are oh, your yeah. top favorite five people to follow on Instagram? Yeah, it is a good question. Mm. No, no. I like uh, I like following people that make parts that are uh, better than the parts that I make. Um, nice. No, you got to tell us no, exactly I, I, who you no, who you, no, who you no, follow. No. Who who do you follow? Who is your like? Who do you go? Oh, I can't wait to see no. this guy. Go. Yeah. Oh, I have seen someone. So. Uh, Josh at Nicholas Harco watches makes some bonkers stuff and seeing his setups for the EDM that he uses just for prototype parts. Um, Dr. Phil over in Canada and yeah, SS CAD Cam cool Amish. He's uh, got some cool stuff. And yeah, we've got, uh, I don't mind seeing some of the knife work that uh, Grimsmo does. But actually, Alfred, I'd like to see more photos of your horizontal in action. Actually, everybody that's got a horizontal. Send me a message so I can follow you on Instagram because I want to see more people with horizontals running because how else are we going to learn how to do it? There you yeah. go. Yeah. There you if go. If you've got a horizontal, hit me up. I want to follow and see what you're making. Okay, so we have reached the end of episode 23. Thank you very much, Chris, for being our guest host today. You have enlightened us in so many ways and your your whole story is, I think, will encourage lots of people to sell their house and buy a drone. <laughs> but, but we appreciate the fact that you've taken the time out of your day, which is incredibly busy, to come and be with us on Machinist Therapy Hotline. So thank you very much, Chris. Uh, thank you, guys. It's, uh, yeah, it's been good. It's been fun. Yeah, I agree. Good talk. Thanks, cool. Man. So until next time... We look forward to having you back on to the Machinist Therapy Hotline. We love you all because you're amazing. And we will see you probably and most likely in two weeks' time. Okay, that's from the crew, the team, the love, Machinist Therapy Hotline. Bye. Adios. See ya.